Chapter 9 of Football Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Anna Roberts. Football Days by William Edwards. Chapter 9A. The 90s and After. Men of today who never had an opportunity of seeing Foster Sanford play will be interested in some anecdotes of his playing days and to read in another chapter of this book some of his coaching experiences. As a boy, says Sandy, I lived in New Haven. I chalked the lines on the football field for the game in which Tilly Lamar made his famous run for Princeton. I played on the college team two years before I entered Yale. I learned a lot of football playing against Billy Rhodes, that great Yale tackle. I'll tell you about the day I made the Yale team in my freshman year. Pa Corbin took me in hand. I think he wanted to see if I had lots of nerve. He told me to report at nine o'clock for practice. He put me through a hard, grueling workout, showing me how to snap the ball, how to charge and body check. All this took place in a driving rain, and he kept me out until one o'clock when he said, You can change your jersey now, that is, put on a dry one. I went over to the training table then to see if I couldn't get some dinner. Believe me, I was hungry. But everyone had finished his meal, and all I could pick up was the things that were left. Here I ran into a fellow named Brennan, who said, they're trying to do you up. This is the day they are deciding whether you will be center rush or not. I then went out to Yale Field and joined the rest of the players, and the stunts they put me through that afternoon I will never forget. But I remember what Brennan had told me, and it made me play all the harder. To tell the truth, after practice I realized that I was so sore I could hardly put one foot ahead of the other. To make matters worse, the coaches told me to run into town, a distance of two miles, while they drove off in a bus. I didn't catch the bus until they were on Park Street, but I pegged along just the same and beat them into the gate. Billy Rhodes and Pa Corbin took care of me and rubbed me down. It seems as though they rubbed every bit of skin off me. I was like fire. That's the day I made the Yale team. I was twenty years old, six feet tall, and weighed about two hundred pounds. When I asked Sandy who gave him the hardest game of his life, he replied promptly, Wharton of Pennsylvania. He got through me. Park Davis's enthusiasm for football is known the country over. From his experience as a player, as a coach, and writer, he has become an authority. Let us read some of his recollections. Years ago there was a high-spirited young player at Princeton serving his novitiate upon the scrub. One day an emergency transferred him for the first time in his career to the varsity. The game was against a small college. This sudden promotion was possible through his fortunate knowledge of the varsity signals. Upon the first play a fumble occurred. Our hero seized the ball. A long service upon the scrub had ingrained him to regard the Princeton varsity men always as opponents. In the excitement of the play he became confused when, lo, he leaped into flight toward the wrong goal. Dashing around Princeton's left end, he reversed his field and crossed over to the right. Phil King, Princeton's quarterback, was so amazed at the performance that he was too spellbound to tackle his comrade. Down the backfield the player sped towards his own goal. Shep Homans, his fullback, took in the impending catastrophe at a glance, and dashed forward, laid the halfback low with a sharp tackle, thereby preventing a safety. The game was unimportant, the Princeton score was large, so the unfortunate player, although the butt of many a jest, soon survived all jokes and jibes, and became in time a famous player. The first Princeton-Yale game in 1873, being played under the old association rules, was waged with a round ball. In the first scrimmage, a terrific report sounded across the field. When the contending players had been separated, the poor football was found upon the field, a flattened sheet of rubber. 
Two toes had struck it simultaneously, or someone's huge chest had crushed it, and the ball had exploded. Whenever men are discussing the frantic enthusiasm of some fellows of the game, I always recall the following episode as a standard of measurement. The Rules Committee met one night at the Martinique in New York for their annual winter session. Just as the members were going upstairs to convene, I had the pleasure of introducing George Foster Sanford to Fielding H. Yost. The introduction was made in the middle of the lobby, directly in the way of the traffic passing in and out of the main door. The Rules Committee had gone into its regular session. The hour was eight o'clock in the evening. When they came down at midnight, these two great football heroes were standing in the very spot where they were introduced four hours before, and they were talking, as they had been every minute throughout the four hours, about football. Members of the committee joked with the two enthusiasts, and then retired. When they came downstairs the next morning at eight o'clock, they found the two fanatics seated upon a bench nearby, still talking football, and that afternoon, when the committee had finished its labors and had adjourned scene D.A., they left Sanford and Yost still in the lobby, still on the bench, hungry and sleepy, and still talking football. This anecdote will be a good one for Park Davis's friends to read, for how he ever stayed out of that talk-fest is a mystery. Maybe he did. Now that Yost and Sanford have retired, we will let Park continue. A few years ago, everybody except Dartmouth men laughed at the football which, bounding along the ground at Princeton, suddenly jumped over the crossbar and gave to Princeton a goal from the field which carried with it the victory. But did you ever hear that in the preceding season, in a game between two southern Pennsylvania colleges, a ball went awry from a dropkick, striking in the chest a policeman who had strayed upon the field? The ball rebounded and clearly caromed between the goalpost for a goal from the field. Years ago, Lafayette and Pennsylvania State College were waging a close game at Easton. Suddenly, and without being noticed, Morton F. Jones, Lafayette's famous center rush in those days, left the field of play to change his headgear. The ball was snapped in play, and a fleet Penn State halfback broke through Lafayette's line, and, armed with the ball, dodged the second barriers and threatened, by a dashing sprint, to score in the extreme corner of the field. As he reached the ten-yard line, to the amazement of all, Jones dashed out of the sideline crowd upon the field between the ten-yard line and his goal, thereby intercepting the state halfback, tackling him so sharply that the latter dropped the ball. Jones picked it up and ran back forty yards. There was no rule at that time which prevented the play, and so Penn State ultimately was defeated. Jones not only was a hero, but his exploit long remained a mystery to many who endeavored to figure out how he could have been twenty-five yards ahead of the ball and between the runner and his own goal line. A story is told of the wonderful dodging ability of Phil King, Princeton 93. He was known throughout the football world as one of the shiftiest runners of his day. Through his efficient work, King had fairly won the game against Yale in 93. The next year the Yale men made up their minds that the only way to defeat Princeton was to take care of King, and they were ever on the alert to watch him whenever he got the ball. The whole Yale team was looking for King throughout this game. On the kickoff, Phil got the ball, and all the Yale forwards began to shout, "'Here he comes! Here he comes!' And then, as he was cleverly dodging and evading the Yale players, one of the backs, who was waiting to tackle him low, was heard to say, "'There he goes!' Those of the old-timers who study the picture of the flying wedge on the opposite page will get a glimpse of Phil King about to set in motion one of the most devilishly ingenious maneuvers in the history of the game. With all the formidable power behind him, the old reliables of what the modern analytical coaches are pleased to term the farce plays. Balliette, Beef Wheeler, Biffy Leah, Gus Hawley, Frank Morse, Doggy Trenchard, 
Douglas Ward, Knox Taylor, Harry Brown, Jerry McCauley, and Jim Blake, King, nevertheless, stood out in lonely eminence, ready to touch the ball down, await the thunder of the joining lines of interference, and pick up the tremendous pace, either at the apex of the crashing V, or cunningly concealed and swept along to meet the terrific impact with the waiting line of blue. Great was the crash thereof, and it was a safe wager that King with the ball would not go unscathed. This kind of football brought to light the old-time indomitable courage of which the stalwarts of those days loved to talk at every gridiron reunion. But for the moment let us give Yale the ball and stand the giant Princeton team upon defense. Let us watch George A.D. get the ball from Phil Stillman, and with his wonderful football genius develop a smashing play enveloped in a locked line of blue, grim with the menace of Orville Hickok, Jim McCree, Anse Beard, Fred Murphy, Frank Hinkey, and Jack Greenway. Onward, these mighty Yale forwards ground their way through the Princeton defense, making a breach through which the mighty Butterworth, Bronk Armstrong, and Brink Thorne might bring victory to Yale. This was truly a day when giants clashed. As you look at these pictures, do the players of today wonder any longer that the heroes of the olden time are still loyal to the game of their first love? If you ever happen to go to China, I am sure one of the first Americans you will hear about would be Pop Gailey, once a king of football centers, and now a leader in YMCA work in China. Lafayette first brought Pop Gailey forth in 93 and 94, and he was the champion All-American center of the Princeton team in 96. He had a wonderful influence over the men on the team. He was an example well worth following. His manly spirit was an inspiration to those about him. After one of the games, a newspaper said, Old Gailey stands firm as the eternal Calvinistic faith, which he intends to preach when his football scrimmages are over. To Charlie Young, the present professor of physical instruction of the Cornell University Gymnasium, I cannot pay tribute high enough for the fine football spirit and the high regard with which we held him while he was at the Princeton Seminary. He certainly loved to play football, and he used to come out and play on the scrub team against the Princeton varsity. He was not eligible to play on the Princeton team, as he had played his allotted time at Cornell. The excellent practice he gave the Princeton team Yes, more than practice, it was oftentimes victory for him as well as the scrub. He made Poe and Palmer ever alert, and did much to make them the stars they were, as Charlie's long suit was running back punts. His head work was always in evidence. He was a great field general. One of his most excellent qualities was that of punting. His was an ideal example for men to follow. Princeton men were the better for having played with, and against, a high-type man like Charlie Young. An Evening with Jim Rogers Jim Rogers gave all there was in him to Yale athletics. Not a single year has passed since he played his last game of football, but has seen him back at the Yale field, coaching and giving the benefit of his experience. Jim Rogers was captain of the 97 team at New Haven, and the traditions that can be written about a winning captain are many. No greater pleasure can be afforded any man who loves to hear an old football player relate experiences than to listen, while Rogers tells of his own playing days, and of some of the men in his experience. It was once my pleasure to spend an evening with Jim in his home, really a football home. Mrs. Rogers knows much of football, and as Jim enthusiastically and with wonderfully keen recollection tells of the old games, a twelve-year-old boy listens, as only a boy can, to his father, his great hero, and as Jim puts his hand on the boy's shoulders, he tells him the ideal of his dreams is to have him make the Yale team some day, and an enthusiastic daughter who sits near hopes so too. His scrapbooks and athletic pictures go to make a rare collection. Many of us would like to have seen Jim Rogers begin his football career at Andover when he was sixteen years old. 
It was there that his 180 pounds of bone and muscle stood for much. It was at Andover that Bill Odin, that great Dartmouth man, coached so many wonderful prep school stars, who later became more famous at the colleges to which they went. Rogers went to Yale, with a big rep. He had been captain of the Andover team. In the fall of 92, Andover beat Brown 24-0. Jim Rogers was very conspicuous on the field, not only on account of his good playing and muscular appearance, but because his blonde hair, which he wore very long as a protection, was very noticeable. From this Yale player, whose friends are legion, let us read some experiences and catch his spirit. I was never a star player, but I was a reliable. In my freshman year I did not make the team, owing to the fact that I had bad knees and better candidates were available. This was the one year in Yale football, perhaps in all football, when the team that played the year before came back to college with not a man missing. Frank Hinkey had been captain the year before, and then came through as senior captain. There was not a senior on Frank Hinkey's team. The first team, therefore, all came back. Al Jerems and Lewis Hinkey were the only additions to the old team. Perhaps the keenest disappointment that ever came to me in football was the fact that I could not play in that famous Yale-Harvard game my freshman year. However, I came so very near it that Billy Rhodes and Heffelfinger came around to where I was sitting on the sidelines, after Fred Murphy had been taken out of the game. They started to limber me up by running me up and down the sideline, but Hinky, the captain, came over to the sideline and yelled for Chadwick, who went into the game. I had worked myself up into a highly nervous condition anticipating going in, but now I realized my knees would not allow it. The disappointment that day, though, was very severe. To show you what a hold these old games had on me, many years after this game Hinky and I were talking about this particular game when he said to me, "'You never knew how close you came to getting into that Springfield game, Jim.' Then I told him of my experience, but he told me that he had it in his mind to put me in at halfback, and ever since then, when I think of it, cold chills run up and down my spine. It absolutely scared me stiff to think how I might have lost that game, even though I never actually participated in it. The Yale football management, however, on account of my work during the season, decided to give me my Y, gold football, and banner. The banner was a blue flag with the names of the team and the position they played in the score, 12-6. to six. It was a case where I came so near winning that they gave it to me. Jim Rogers played three years against Gary Cochran, and this great Princeton captain stands out in his recollections of the Yale-Princeton games. He goes on to say, If it had not been for Gary Cochran, I might be rated as one of the big tackles of the football world today. I used to dream of him three weeks before the Princeton game, how I was going to stand him off, and let me tell you, if you got in between Doc Hillerbrand and Gary Cochran, you were a sucker. Those games were a nightmare to me. Cochran used to fall on my foot, box me in, and hold me there, and keep me out of the play. Jim Rogers is very modest in this statement. The very reason that he is regarded as a truly wonderful tackle is on account of the great game he played against Cochran. How wonderfully reliable he was, football history well records. He was always to be depended upon. In the fall of 1897, when I was captain of the Yale team, Rogers continues, Perhaps the most spectacular Yale victory was pulled off, when Princeton, with the exception of perhaps two men, and virtually the same team that had beaten Yale the year before, came on the field, and through overconfidence or lack of training did not show up to their best form. We were out for blood that day. I said to Johnny Baird, Princeton quarterback, Princeton is great today. We have played ten minutes, and you haven't scored. Johnny, with a look of determination upon his face, said, you fellows can play ten times ten minutes, and you'll never score. But the Princeton football hangs in the Yale trophy room. 
I have always claimed that Charlie DeSalles put the Yale 97 team on the map. Charlie DeSalles, with his three wonderful runs, which averaged not less than 60 yards each, really brought about the victory. Frank Butterworth, as head coach, will always have my highest regard. He did more than anyone alive could have done to pull off an apparently impossible victory. One great feature of this game was Ad Kelly's series of individual gains, aided by Hillebrand and Edwards, through Rogers and Chadwick. Kelly took the ball for forty consecutive yards up the field in gains of from one to three yards each, when, fortunately for Yale, a fumble gave them the ball. When the fumble occurred, I happened at the time to break through very fast. There lay the ball upon the ground, and nobody but myself near it. The great chance was there to pick it up and, perhaps, even with my slow speed, gain twenty to thirty yards for Yale. No such thought, however, entered my head. I wanted that ball, and curled up around it, and hugged it as a tortoise would close in its shell. My recollection is now that I sat there for about five minutes before anybody deigned to fall on me. At all events, I had the ball. Gordon Brown played as a freshman on my team. He had a football face that I liked. He weighed 185 pounds and was six feet four inches tall. Gordon went up against Bove in the Harvard game, and the critics stated that Bove was the best guard in the country that year. I said to Gordon, Play this fellow the game of his life, and when you get him let me know, and I'll send some plays through you. After about sixty minutes of play, Gordon came to me and said, Jim, I've got him. And he had him all right, for we were then successful in gaining through that part of the Harvard line. Gordon Brown was a very earnest player. He would allow nothing to stop him. He got his ears pretty well bruised up, and they bothered him a great deal. In fact, he did have to lay off two or three days. He came to me and said, Do you think this injury will keep me out of the big game? Well, I'll see if the trainer cannot make a headgear for you. Well, I'll tell you this, Jim, said Gordon. I'll have him cut off before I'll stay out of the game. This amused me, and I said, Gordon, you have nothing of beauty to lose. You will keep your ears, and you will play in the big games. Gordon Brown's team, under Malcolm McBride as head coach, was a wonder. This eleven, to our minds, was the best ever turned out by Yale University. They defeated Princeton twenty-nine to five, and the powerful Harvard team twenty-eight to zero. Their one weakness was that they had no long punter, but, as they expressed it to me afterward, they had no need of one. At one time during the game with Harvard they took the ball on their own ten-yard line and, instead of kicking, marched it up the field, and in a very few rushes scored a touchdown. Harvard men afterwards told me that after seeing a few minutes of the game, they forgot the strain of Harvard's defeat in their admiration of Yale's playing. This team showed the highest coordination between the Yale coaching staff, the college, and the players, and they set a high watermark for all future teams to aim at, which was all due to Gordon Brown's genius for organization and leadership. It has been my experience in talking of football stars with some of the old-timers that Frank Hinkey heads the list. I cannot let Frank Hinkey remain silent this time. He says, I think it was in the fall of 95 that Skim Brown, who played the tackle position, was captain of the scrubs team at New Haven. Brown was a very energetic scrub captain. He was continuously urging on his men to better work. As you recall, the cry, tackle low and run low, was continuously called after the teams in those days. Brown's particular pet phrase in urging his men was, run low, so that he, whenever the halfback received the ball, would immediately start to holler, run low, and would keep this up until the ball was dead. He got so in the habit of using this call when on the offense, that one day, when the quarterback called upon him to run with the ball from the tackle position, even before he got the ball he started to cry, run low, while carrying the ball himself, and continued to cry out, run low, even after he had gained ground for about fifteen yards and until the ball was dead. 
It was in the fall of 92, when Vance McCormick was captain of the Yale team, and Diney O'Neill was trying for the guard position. As you know, the linemen are very apt to know only the signals on offense which call for an opening at their particular position, and even then a great many of them never know the signals. Now Diney was bright enough, but like most linemen did not know the signals. It happened one day that McCormick, at the quarterback position, called several plays during the afternoon that required O'Neill to make an opening. O'Neill invariably failed because he didn't know the signals. McCormick, suspecting this, finally gave O'Neill a good calling down. The calling down fell flat in its effects on O'Neill, as his reply to McCormick was, "'To hell with your mystic signs and symbols. Give me the ball!' "'The real founder of football at Dartmouth was Bill Odlin,' writes Ed Hall. Odlin learned his football at Andover, and came to Dartmouth with a class of ninety, and it was while he was in college that football really started. He was practically the only coach. He was a remarkable kicker, certainly one of the best, if not the best. In the fall of 89, Odlin was captain of the team and playing fullback. Harvard and Yale played at Springfield, and on the morning of the Harvard-Yale game, Dartmouth and Williams played on the same field. It was in this game in the fall of 89 that he made his most remarkable kick, in which the wind was a very important element. In the second half, Odlin was standing practically on his own ten-yard line. The ball was passed back to him to be kicked, and he punted. The kick itself was a remarkable kick, and perfect in every way, but when the wind caught it, it became a wonder, and it went along like a balloon. The wind was really blowing a gale, and the ball landed away beyond the Williams quarterback, and the first bounce carried it several yards beyond their goal line. Of course, any such kick as this would have been absolutely impossible except for the extreme velocity and pressure of the wind, but it was easily the longest kick I ever saw. Three times during Odlin's football-playing days he kicked goals from the 65-yard line, and while at Andover he kicked a placed kick from a mark in the exact center of the field, scoring a goal. When brown men discuss football, their recollections go back to the days of Hopkins and Millard, of Robinson, McCarthy, Fultz, Everett Colby, and Gammons, Fred Murphy, Frank Smith, the giant guard, that great spectacular player, Richardson, and other men mentioned elsewhere in this book. In a recent talk with that sterling fellow, Dave Fultz, he told me something about his football career. It was, in part, as follows. I played at Brown in 94, 95, 96, and 97, captaining the team in my last year. Gammons and I played in the backfield together. He was unquestionably a great runner with the ball, one of the hardest men to hurt I think I ever saw. I have often seen him get jolts, go down, and naturally one would think go out entirely, but when I would go up to him he would jump up as though he had not felt it. I think Everett Colby was as good a man interfering for the runner as I have seen. He played quarterback and captained the Brown team in 96. I don't think there was ever a better quarterback than Willis D. Richardson, rich as we used to call him. Dave Fultz is very modest, and when he discusses his football experiences, he sidetracks one and talks of his fellow college players. Now that I have pinned him down, he goes on to say, The day before we played the Indians one year, my knee hurt me so much that I had to go to the doctor. He put some sort of ointment on it. Two days before this game, I could hardly move my leg. The doctor threatened me with water on the knee. He told me to go to bed and stay there, but I told him we had a game in New York and I had to go. He said, All right, if you want water on the knee. I said, I've got to go, if I am at all able. Anyway, I went on down to New York with the team and played in the game. All I needed was to get warmed up good, and I went along in great shape. Those who remember reading the accounts of that game will recall that Dave Fultz made some miraculous runs that day, and was a team in himself. Fred Murphy, who was captain of the 98 team at Brown and played end rush, says, 
I think Dave Fultz played under more difficulties than any man that ever played the game. I have seen him play with a heavy knee brace. He had his shoulder dislocated several times, and I have seen him going into the game with his arm strapped down to his side, so that he could just use his forearm. He played a number of games that way. That happened when he was captain. He was absolutely conscientious, fearless, and a good leader. End of chapter 9, part A